Hi, this is Lindsay Jacobs. And this is Rachel Weiskadel. Welcome to another episode of the Jero Psychology Podcast, where we talk about all things Jero. So today is part two of our disparities and discrimination in the COVID era episode. And we're going to be talking specifically about race and ethnic disparities as it relates to COVID. We have been really happy to see that this has been getting a lot of attention in the news in the past month or two. And because it's becoming increasingly apparent, this is something that is dramatically affecting the population as a whole. But before we dive into this episode, I wanted to follow up on our part one of disparities and discrimination in the COVID era. A new resource came out on the APA website. It's APA COVID-19 and Aging Resources. We'll include the link to this site on the show notes for today's episode. We did include the link in the show notes for part one of this episode because it came out just a couple of days before we actually published the part one episode. This is a really great resource for clinicians and researchers and students to have. It really sums up some of the things that we talked about in that episode on aging disparities in the COVID era and ageism in the COVID era. So on this website, it includes articles on ageism, tips for addressing ageism during the pandemic. And I realized, Rachel, that we didn't define what ageism is when we did our part one episode. I think we just Ah. sort of assumed that folks might already be familiar with this term. That is funny because I think as geropsychologists, we are so used to talking about ageism that sometimes it's hard to take a step back and be like, oh, yes, it's it's good to actually describe what this might mean to people who aren't familiar with it. <laughs> and I think that we probably do have some listeners who aren't geropsychologists or, or in geropsychology training. So just mm-hmm. to very briefly define what ageism is, it's a prejudice or discrimination based on a person's age. And ageism can come in forms, you know, where it seems to be positive and then also uh, negative. So an example of maybe a positive, what seems to be a positive form of an ageist belief. When I say positive, I'm talking about when you have this belief or you make a statement that's ageist, it seems like it's coming from a good place. One example is, so I live in a state where the the governor is an older female, and I'm on some Facebook groups that talk about COVID within this local area, and people have referred to our governor as Meemaw, and... Yeah. <laughs> and there there was actually discussion in this Facebook page where, you know, some people were saying, well, I've, you know, I just thought of it as an endearing term. And I actually put myself out there and started having conversations with people on social media about this and tried to explain that even when it's sort of coming from a good place, when you comment or uh, point out something based on a person's age like that, that it's actually, that it's ageist. And I think that people were pretty receptive to what I was saying. That is so cool that you said something about that, because I do think that most people assume that it's okay to draw attention or make assumptions 
or group people together by age, and they don't really think about how that is still a stereotype, even yeah. if it is something that they view as a positive trait. It's still generalizing a, a group of people. Yes. And for for those of you listeners who aren't familiar with the term Meemaw, <laughs> that, that's what the name that I call my grandmother by. It, it is a name for a grandmother. Is that the main way that people say grandma? Like instead of saying grandma, that's the predominant way of calling a grandparent? In the South, it's very common to have a Meemaw. Some of the other resources that are on that APA COVID-19 and aging resource page are tip sheets and articles on hospice and palliative care, social isolation, and the role of psychologists during the COVID era. And I also wanted to bring attention to another resource. This is on the website for the Gerontological Society of America, or GSA. They have a webpage titled COVID-19 Updates. And they have a few fact sheets that were that are so relevant to what we talked about in our part one episode of Disparities and Discrimination. One of the fact sheets is titled, Why Older Adults Are Highly Susceptible to Diseases Like COVID-19. And it covers a lot of what we talked about. There's another tip sheet on understanding ageism and COVID-19. And there's another one on physical separation without social isolation. So jumping into today's topic, race and ethnic disparities in the COVID era, what we know from the data so far is that minority populations are disproportionately affected by COVID. There was a study that was published in Health Affairs at the end of May, and this was a retrospective study that was conducted uh, it it get, used data from a large integrated healthcare system in Northern California. And the researchers were looking at risk of hospitalization by race and ethnicity. And one thing, if you, one thing that you'll notice if you look up information on race and ethnic disparities in COVID, one of the main things that continues to be reported is this risk of hospitalization. So this study reported on it. In their model, they controlled for known risk factors at the time, and they found that non-Hispanic Black patients had 2.7 greater odds of hospitalization from COVID compared to white patients. And among those individuals who were hospitalized for COVID, they found that there was a higher proportion of black patients compared to white patients who were transferred to intensive care or the ICU. So the severity of COVID seems to be greater among minority groups. I also attended an APA webinar and learned that CMS, uh, this is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, so they've analyzed data and found that among the Medicare beneficiaries, African Americans or Blacks have been hospitalized four times more than white Medicare beneficiaries. And African American or Black Medicare beneficiaries have contracted COVID three times more than white beneficiaries. There was another article that we looked at, Rachel, on uh, New York Times 
I think this is one that, that you actually found. Uh, mm-hmm. So nursing homes that have a higher proportion of Black and Latinx residents have been twice as likely to be hit by COVID compared to those where the population is overwhelmingly white. And one thing I found just really sad was in this New York Times article, and we'll provide the link, it talked about there was a there was an interview with a certified nursing assistant in this facility. It was a facility in California where the resident population was primarily Latinx. And she talked about how when there was this shortage of PPE and more specifically a shortage, they didn't have medical grade eye protection. It just wasn't available to them at the time. So the administration gave them swimming goggles to wear during this time. Which is unreal. Yeah. So I think that's something else that we have found in our readings is that, you know, nursing homes or communities of people who are at the highest risk for developing poor outcomes are also those who have the lowest resources in handling COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mentioned that a lot of what you can find online talks a a lot about hospitalization rates. On the CDC website, we had looked at this in like early June, this information, and specifically we're looking at age-adjusted COVID hospitalization rates by ethnicity and race. And the CDC um, will provide the link to this. There's a graph that shows rates of COVID uh, hospitalization. And what they report is that American Indian, Alaska Native, and non-Hispanic Blacks have a higher rate of hospitalization compared to non-Hispanic Whites. So in that rate of hospitalization is actually, they reported five times greater among those groups compared to Whites. That is huge. Yeah, it really is. And regarding the Hispanic or Latinx population, they found that that population has a rate of hospitalization that is four times greater than non-Hispanic whites. Yeah, I mean, the numbers that have been coming out have just been really striking. Yeah, these differences are huge. As we were getting ready to record this episode, I actually went back to that web page and looked at it, and the page has been updated. Um, the CDC web page has been updated. So for you listeners, if you're wanting to look at the data that I just talked about, um, it's no longer described or explained on this web page that we're going to include in the show notes. And I mean, I guess... Perhaps that information was taken down because maybe the numbers that they reported there are obsolete, you know, as new data comes in. I don't know. I don't know why that information is not there, but we still do have a link to that original graph that that we can provide. I will say that from the time that we first looked at this website, got all this information for this episode, Up until, you know, when I looked at it again yesterday and today, the major change that has happened during that time is how the data is being reported and where the data is being reported. So, you know, we're talking about the United States. 
So before the change, states were reporting COVID data to the CDC, which I think was part of what's called the National Health Safety Network, which is a surveillance system. And in mid-July, the reporting system or the process of how things were reported was changed. And this was required by the federal government. I'm sure that people have heard uh, about this. Um, There's been some controversy around it. Now, hospitals have to report data to the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, which oversees the CDC. And we have a, just a very brief NPR article to share in the show notes. I looked at the CDC website. There is a news release on the CDC website where the CDC director and the HHS chief information officer described why this change occurred and what the process looks like now. So they explained that before this change, data was coming through a few different ways, that it was coming from the National Health Safety Network, as well as the Health and Human Services Protect system and through a system called teletracking. They state that the reason this change was made was to streamline this process to make it less confusing for hospitals reporting this data and also to make the data more readily available, so more rapid uh, collection of the data. So with this new change, now all hospital data comes through the teletracking system or through the HHS Protect system. And so people have a harder time accessing updated information? Is that what one of the residual effects of this change is? So I don't think that people have a difficult time accessing percentages. So prior to this change, I was able to go into the CDC tracker and look at numbers, cases. Because we used to be able to look at this data and organize it based on ethnicity or race and location slash state and all those things. Right. And that has changed. So if you go to, if you do look at the demographics, this is on cdc.gov COVID data tracker by demographics. The way that the information is laid out here though, it's presented in a way that would be difficult for the layperson to interpret how COVID is disproportionately affecting minority groups. I think this is something that's really important um, that people need to be aware of. So when you get on that website, if you look at, for example, deaths by race and ethnicity, they have the race ethnic groups and they have the percentages there. They don't have the numbers. They've got the percentages, but you can calculate the number yourself. Uh, So for deaths by race, ethnicity, what they've done is taken that total number of deaths And provided the percentage of, for example, Hispanic, Latinx percentage of deaths out of all total deaths. Yeah, so it's a percentage of the total population. Well, it's a percentage of the total population of individuals who have died from COVID. It doesn't take into account Mm. of the population as a whole. And it also doesn't take into consideration the relative sizes of each ethnic group. Exactly. This is very different than when we were putting our notes together for this episode. 
you know, a while ago. You know, just looking at the way this data is laid out, it is so much more difficult to piece together how these numbers are related to each other. You know, it, it's yes. taken a higher cognitive processing when before, I think that you could even adjust the variables to, you know, ask it questions. Yeah. And it will just directly tell you how are different age groups, locations, states, different, you know, minority groups, how are people, you know, affected by COVID? And now you know, there's no interactive component to this website either. Right. Or, okay. You can, I guess, do it by age groups and looking, and, but that's about it, which is very different. Right. So if the layperson is looking at this, you know, deaths by race and ethnicity on the CDC website on the data tracker now, they might look and say Hispanic and Latinx, you know, 17.1% deaths and black non-Hispanics, 22.4% death and white non-Hispanics, 49.9% deaths. And they might come to the conclusion, oh, well, whites have been disproportionately affected by COVID. There's been a greater number of deaths. But what this is not taking into consideration is the larger population as a whole, right? So Mm -hmm. what we do know, and I got this information from the U.S. Census Bureau, the number of individuals in the United States across race and ethnicity you know, just a very crude calculation that I did, what I found was that among blacks, the death rate is two times greater compared to whites. But mm-hmm. you don't get that just by looking at these uh, percentages that are listed here on this website. No, not at all. There are a couple of other COVID data trackers. One of the ones I wanted to mention is the COVID racial data tracker. This is supported by the COVID tracking project and the Boston University. And we'll include the link to this COVID racial data tracker on the show notes. In terms of um, race and ethnic disparities, what they found is that black people account for 23% of all COVID deaths. And now, mind you, this is information that I gathered about a month ago, so it's likely been updated since then. Another data tracker to mention is one that um, has been developed by Emory University, and this has a COVID-19 health equity interactive dashboard, which is pretty cool. So it allows you to visualize side by side the social determinants of health and rates of COVID-19. And these websites are really useful because people have already done that math who are statisticians, who are epidemiologists, and who are able to interpret this data without the burden being on the layperson trying to untangle what these numbers mean from websites like the CDC and the way that they're reporting it right now. Yes. There have been a number of different articles that have brought to light why there is such a a gap in disparities as it relates to COVID. And, you know, racial and ethnic health and social inequities, this is not a new topic. These inequities have existed for a very long time and it's just further compounded by COVID. On the CDC website, there's a a webpage we'll provide a link to, they've described 
some of the factors that relate to these disparities, and this was also described in that APA webinar that I attended. So one huge issue is barriers to healthcare access. And there's lots of reasons why that is so. Yeah, I mean, there are things like language barriers, mistrust of the healthcare system, and even access to care in a very physical sense. There's lots of documentation and historical precedents for this infrastructure being built in various cities in America for racial purposes in purposefully separating the quote-unquote good and bad neighborhoods from each other, resulting in food deserts, resulting in limited access to public transportation, and lots of things that make even just physically getting healthcare more difficult. You mentioned mistrust or distrust. So I am currently living in Alabama. I know, I'm, I hope that all of the listeners have heard of the Tuskegee study. Tuskegee is here in Alabama. It's like in my backyard, essentially. So the Tuskegee study, this was started in the 1930s and it didn't end until the 1970s. But the what this study did was enroll black men with and without syphilis. The participants in the study were told that they were being treated for quote unquote bad blood. So right there, you know, that informed consent was totally botched. Mm-hmm. And what was really alarming is that, well, I mean, the whole thing was alarming, but one of the huge issues was that, so penicillin, it became the gold standard treatment for syphilis back in the 1940s. And this study went on up until I think it was like the earlier mid 1970s. And these men in the study were never told about penicillin, the Mm -hmm. gold standard treatment. They were never given treatment to treat their syphilis. And this, along with other well-known horrific studies and maltreatment of minority populations, has really given rise to this mistrust in Mm -hmm. the medical community, this mistrust of research. There was a, an article that I saw, it was published on the New York Times. The title of it is Questions of Bias in COVID-19 Treatment Add to the Mourning for Black Families. So in this article, they talked about, it was a 50-year-old black man who was living in Chicago. He had a history of diabetes. And my understanding was that maybe the diabetes wasn't well managed by his doctor. He had expressed to his family members just dissatisfaction with his doctor. And he had a spike in temperature, so he had a fever. He started having breathing difficulties. So one of his family members urged him to seek testing and care. So he went to an urgent care clinic, and he was sent Mm -hmm. home without testing. He was just simply told to quarantine. And he lived alone and he was found dead by his sister a week later. Mm -hmm. And his family, understandably so, are just completely grief stricken, heartbroken. This did not need to happen. Mm -hmm. And they talked about wondering if this scenario would have played out differently if he had been white. And I think Mm -hmm. that that is a completely valid question. 
Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of evidence and a lot of studies for how this is just a, one example of the institutionalized racism in, in our healthcare. Medical providers do not interpret reports of pain from Black patients the same way they interpret it from white patients. They don't place as much credibility when Black patients report high rates of pain. They are less likely to give them pain medications, or at least as much pain medications as they would give a white patient with a similar symptom presentation. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of studies that support that. And there are a lot of, you know, personal anecdotes that I have uh, heard. And I think that maybe some of our listeners can even relate to some of these experiences of feeling unheard or not taken as seriously because of your minority status within the healthcare system. And this is really playing out when people are similarly presenting with symptoms of COVID. And discrimination doesn't just happen in the healthcare system, obviously. It is pervasive in society. And the amount of stress that it can cause, chronic stress, and we know that chronic stress impacts health and well-being and discrimination it impacts both you know social and economic factors this is just another layer to understand another layer to account for when you're looking at these disparities when talking about these widespread pervasive inequities it's important to take into account education and income gaps as well with poorer education or a higher dropout rate that impacts the type of job that you're eligible for. And if you drop out of school early or have a poor education, you're more likely to take a job that has a lower wage or fewer benefits, less flexibility in your work schedule, which, you know, this all impacts the type of food that you can buy, how much physical activity you get, as well as your access to health care. So these are systemic issues, and they are what are being highlighted as potential reasons for minority communities having worse health outcomes due to COVID-19, as well as susceptibility to infection of COVID-19, yes. is that they are more likely to be frontline workers, not able to work from home as easily, not having as many sick days. So their exposure is higher to other people who may be carriers of COVID-19. Yeah, and speaking of exposure, they're more likely to live in intergenerational households. Which is why these discrepancies are also occurring in the older adult population. Yes. Yeah. At least in part. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention on this topic of health and healthcare inequities that rates of chronic diseases are often higher in minority populations. So just for example, heart disease and diabetes, there are higher rates of these two chronic conditions in Black Americans compared to white Americans. And these underlying chronic health conditions put them at greater risk of having a more severe course of COVID, more health complications due to COVID, and that also puts them at a greater risk of mortality. So again, the numbers of, co of cases and deaths by ethnicity and race is, I think, a very 
stark example of the concrete, tangible, direct effects of these institutionalized problems that have been around for a long time. All of a sudden, we have this pandemic that is spreading so rapidly. And I think it's lifting this veil for many people who were perhaps not in tune to these discrepancies before because of its pretty quick cause and effect due to COVID. Higher infection, higher death rates, and it's shining this light on something that has been perhaps a little bit more diffuse across many diseases and many other factors until this year. It's surfacing with all these numbers, Mm -hmm. which also brings us back to why it's so important to have accurate numbers. Absolutely. That's a really good point. In the part one, disparities and discrimination in the COVID era episode, we talked about kind of at the end of that episode, uh, Dr. Inouye's study on Mm -hmm. the clinical trials that had been registered. And we talked about some of the barriers to recruiting and enrolling older adult participants and that there were some issues with the study methods, their inclusion exclusion criteria, concern about not enrolling older adults, this population that has been significantly impacted by COVID. Some of those factors that we talked about last time certainly apply when we're talking about older minority populations. So just to think back on that episode, you know, some of the barriers were that some of the studies required the participants or the subjects to have access to internet. And, you know, we talked about the digital divide when it comes to older adults, um, but that digital divide is even greater at the intersection of age and uh, race and ethnicity. Another point is Dr. Inouye found that some of those studies excluded individuals who had existing chronic health conditions, even those who that were adequately managed. And diabetes and hypertension were among the two that were noted. And, you know, we talked about just a few minutes ago how that older Black Americans have higher rates of these medical conditions compared to older white Americans. And so, you know, this is a huge deal. The the way that study methods are currently written and being conducted, it could potentially impact who is being recruited for these studies. There was a, an article that was published on Stat News. It talked about how, you know, if you're taking into consideration the percentage or the rate of COVID and COVID-related deaths in minority populations, that you would need to ideally have about 40% of, so in a vaccine trial that you would ideally need to have about 40% of your study sample be Black or Latinx individuals in order to account for the disproportionate representation of COVID in these communities. Yeah, that is a really, I mean, it's just such 40% is a really high percentage. And that just really goes to show you how much this is affecting these communities in comparison to the white population. Yeah. What's really a huge issue is we know that in order to participate in vaccine trials, there are barriers to participating. 
So the amount of time required in participating in a vaccine trial, you know, if you're recruiting from a population that may be working and they have, they're in a position or a job that doesn't have a whole lot of flexibility and time off, that's going to be an issue. Then you have this issue with mistrust of the medical community. One thing I really liked about this article on Stat News is they talk about four strategies to ensure that vaccine trials are recruiting a racially and ethnically representative sample. The first step that they talk about is to acknowledge the problem, acknowledge that trials in the past have not included racially or ethnically diverse samples, and acknowledge that moving forward, it is imperative that they do. And the second step talks about how study sites need appropriate funding to take extra measures to recruit diverse samples. The extra measures or strategies that they talk about include having a diverse workforce in the study sites. And if you don't have a diverse workforce in your system, in your at your site, you should hire more employees of color. Another issue is transportation, and we've talked about that being a barrier. So you need money to provide reimbursement to subjects or participants in these vaccine trials. Also, it's important to increase and improve recruitment strategies. So reaching out to an array of diverse neighborhoods and media outlets and sort of along the lines of recruitment there, the third step is you have to address the mistrust of medical communities. And you can do this by, they talk about hosting virtual town meetings and how it's so important. It's imperative to meet with local stakeholders from Black and Latinx communities. And then the last step, and this is really important, is to make sure that once a vaccine becomes available, it's available to everybody regardless of race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, health insurance, or ability to pay. Everyone should have access. And those are really good strategies. And you know what? There has to be more. And so for you listeners out there, if you have any additional thoughts on this issue, if you have any additional recommendations, we would really love to hear from you and disseminate those ideas to listeners. So be sure to go onto the website and leave us a comment. It's always good to hear different strategies that are available that we can do something to incorporate this knowledge into our practice and into our own scientific work. So we'll post these strategies onto the show notes as well so people can look at them and and keep them or tape them over their desk if they want to be reminded that there's always something that things that we can all do to try to close the gap in these disparities. In our next episode, we are going to be talking about telemental health. We'll be talking with Dr. Tara McBride-Afonso, and we'll specifically be discussing legal and ethical issues to keep in mind and just practical tips for conducting telemental health. If you'd like to start a conversation with us and the wider geropsychology community or medical community about today's episode or another episode, you can find us on Twitter at the Jero Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a comment, you can contact us by going to our website at www.thegeropsychologypodcast.com. 
and leave us a message on the contact page that goes directly to our email inbox and we will respond. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or anywhere podcasts are found. And you can leave us some stars or likes and comments there as well. Like, rate, subscribe. Like, rate, subscribe. <laughs> Until next we'll time. Until next time. Bye. Bye.